welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Cole Spivak, and this is episode 16. So far, this podcast has been mostly about COVID and how it's affected our lives. But for the next few episodes, I want to do some digging into the different disciplines that make up our team. Today, my guest is Fabian Bohm. Hello, my, my name, my name is Herr Fabian Bohm. And today we're going to talk shop about research methods, practices, and more. I hope you enjoy this deep dive into our research world. And I'll see you on the other side with a wrap-up. Principally, I wanted to make this interesting, right? Because research has the unfortunate burden of being something that is, you know, perceived as boring. Not only that, but also perceived, like there's a mystique around it in a sense, right? But it's Mm -hmm. that damaging mystique. It's like this is done in a basement somewhere, you know? Yeah. So I wanted to kind of I know that we can't shrug that off in in 20 or 30 minutes or however long this is going to be but I think we can give um maybe a, a summary or some kind of insight into the research, research process yeah yeah almost like what research is from like university academia what people will be familiar with and what UX research actually is yeah that's the the principle why it actually maybe why it shouldn't be called UX research but that's a different that's probably too deep <laughs> perhaps um, but yeah, I, I, I think we're on the same uh, wavelength here in terms of yep. uh, what research means in academia versus what research means for UX and what research yeah. means, uh, I guess, more broadly speaking, in the organization, right? So yep. um, let's let's start there. Let's talk about um, let's let's frame the conversation a little bit in the sense of research questions mm-hmm. um, and how a research question might be formed and approached in an academic setting versus in um, a business setting. Sure. Yeah. So um, in your opinion, what, how what do you see as the differences? Um, well, I think generally speaking, business requests can come from various um departments and level of experiences um, and with various expectations that can differ widely. In our case, we work with various business units. Uh, Sometimes they have a good understanding of what our team can offer and and how generally UX research, for example, would work. Um, Other times they might come with very unrealistic expectations or maybe come with us, for example, saying that they want to do a focus group, even though that may not be the right approach. Um, so I guess like the, the main difference here is that the, the experience with what research is and how to approach it and how to request it and consume it ultimately is, is varies widely. And there's a lot of I guess, also education work we have to do internally. Whereas in a research, yeah, so for example, an academic setting, university or even private research organizations, there, there generally is a very high level of shared understanding what research is usually um, certain disciplines or departments would have certain standards. Um, those are often publicly or privately funded with uh, quite a long grant or other processes. And generally speaking, that before someone would work on anything, um, it is uh, very well thought out, budgeted, and often those those uh, those research endeavors might last months or, or years often. And again, there's a very common shared understanding, um, for example, how you would conduct this research 
Um, there's uh, obviously there's disagreements too, but there's generally an agreement on how the methods that you would do that with, and how you document it, how you publish it, how it gets peer reviewed at the end, if it's valid, not valid, what a p value is, and all that sort of nerdier stats <laughs> stuff. Versus like an hour setting, it's it's um, it's very different, and there's also less, I guess, academic rigor. So UX research in our sense, I think, is a lot more. Um, we are a lot more concerned, or at least I don't want to speak for others. I'm personally a lot more concerned with like how will this get acted on ultimately? Like I'm very at the end very action oriented. Like if I do great research but no one reads it and it doesn't get acted on, then it was basically almost useless to me. Whereas in an academic setting, that sort of action component is almost non-existent. It's more about has this research been done? correctly and can like is, is it peer reviewed so that the audience really in an academic setting is more your peers and you're standing within that peer network versus uh, in our setting i think it's more how do our business partners or stakeholders or whoever is ultimately requesting that research how do we understand and how they can actually act on it to ultimately drive better customer experiences yeah what i what i see is the the big difference there i think you hit Away at which was the actionability of the research, right? And if you're in an academic setting, of course, um, I mean, there's there's differences in the fields in academia too. Like there are uh, there's laboratory research that might produce uh, a, a new protein strain or uh, COVID vaccine, something COVID vaccine, for instance, right? And that, of course, is something very actionable, right? That could yeah. save lives. Uh, a new type of implant, for instance, all these different things, right, in, in a medical field. And then there's research that's done uh, on on social things and political things, and, and which produces uh, equal value in a sense, but it's not as um, not as actionable, right? Not as useful. And there, the research that we do for uh, in business and and for UX is definitely on that more actionable side, right? Um, yeah. But there, in being actionable, right, the timeline of research is significantly reduced, especially when we're talking about more usability-oriented asks mm-hmm. uh, versus academic research, which is on a timescale of you know multiple years, if not decades, right? Yeah, to and conduct a lot of rigor process. ultimately too. Do you think that there is uh, risk inherent in in doing things sort of more ad hoc uh, for the business, or do you think that these two types of research exist kind of independent from each other? Um, I absolutely think there's high risk in doing something um, too fast or in unrealistic expectation, but we still sometimes do that because there's also on the other side, there's the risk of not doing any research and going completely into it without any customer information, which is ultimately worse in my mind. So it's really like weighing the risks of what's the risk of, doing this may be slightly wrong in a sense or maybe too fast and we have to compromise from sort of a purely uh, methods perspective. Because um, obviously in a perfect world, we all would like to have million dollars of budget and years to conduct research with like hundreds of thousands of people. So we're absolutely sure that whatever you find is universally applicable, but we obviously don't. And I think the, the main difference to in our work is that if we're embedded in labs or working on product teams, uh, for example, and test quite regularly, I'm just thinking of my work with the and your work as well with the IMS lab where we're testing sort of on a bi-weekly basis and we're very close to the product. It's quite different than again a research study that is just one um, like a snapshot in time. And I guess generally speaking, that's why there is also this um, 
I guess, this general conception of research in a university setting, like the ivory tower, like you just produce it to produce it, and there's really no, no impact to society or limited impact to, to society. And I think that generally, um, we, I, th- I think we feel um, a lot in the perceptions um, with our business stakeholders. So I think when, I, I shouldn't say, as a researcher, I think, I assume that when um, other people haven't interacted with our team a lot, might hear the word UX research, um, research might have all of those connotations, right? It takes very long. It will have a very dry report. It may not be actionable. It will take a lot of time. It will take a lot of money. It's maybe, again, using a language that's sort of very, you know, dry and academic. And it's just, it's like the furthest away from action, which uh, couldn't be the, the furthest away from the truth how we interact. But I, again, I still feel like those connotations um, are there because I think um someone didn't have any exposure to UX research or design research, the general terminology of research that would be familiar with either through school or university setting or hearing it in the news is quite different from we like our day-to-day. Most interactions with research outside of academia um, tend to be that sort of dry, more statistical yeah. focused, right? And I, I dare to say they're more on the quantitative side, right? As I say, polling is actually just, as you, you talked about, and I think that that's another point to raise too is that there's also sort of distrust in research. So when it comes now, for example, if you look at the south of the border and the election, each side has some sort of service that show, you know, their their support through their policies or why their approach is the right one or the wrong one. Um, and I think there is a general sentiment in the overall population that everybody can just do their own, you know, survey and come up with some sort of results. And can you really trust? Those numbers, because often those numbers shouldn't be trusted because they're they're deliberately skewed towards a certain certain viewpoint. So I think that is another important aspect to consider too. It's not just the academic setting has sort of this uh, brought this notion of you know ivory tower and far removed from um, you know reality sometimes and costly and long term and so on and so forth. But also again in the general uh, populace, I think there is a um, the, the, it can be a perception and Rightfully so, that research also can just be used as a tool to drive your own agenda forward. Is there a rule we can follow or use to determine when data is good or bad, or like when we can trust the numbers? I think that there. Um, I think there's definitely sort of general rules to follow. So, for example, like the first question to ask. And I think general is very important to anyone these days because there's so much data flying at us from all sorts of angles as to what food should we eat, what's, you know, is this healthy, is this unhealthy, and all sorts of different angles. Um, I think generally speaking, the first question to ask in my mind is who is behind this research? So is this, for example, if it's funded um, by a certain industry group that does research on whatever they're producing or selling? Probably not as, not as reliable. Um, there's obviously inherent risk of biasing it. Same with political research or polls. If like the you know the Democratic Party has a poll and the Republicans have a poll, um, maybe they're not as trustworthy as if the, for example, the Pew Institute um, would would conduct or in a university setting would conduct a research that is not funded in part or parcel or fully by. Um, by any 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 party or any interest group. So I think that's first of all, is that really the person who's conducting research, do they actually have a research interest in mind or is there some sort of other 
um, agenda. And then generally also speaking is like, where does that data come from? So a good example would be like these online polls. Like, for example, if um, I have a political party and a website and I put a poll up there and ask people from that website what they think about a certain issue, and obviously those numbers would be highly skewed by the by how I quote unquote have recruited those people, um, because those are people that are already going to this politically skewed website and therefore likely share my my viewpoints. Same in general with like if I just um, there's a newspaper and they have um, you know an online poll there too. Those should be also questioned because again, uh, is it really like a representative sample of the overall um, population? So I think those two, I think if um, on the top, yeah, on top of my head would be uh, who is who is funding that or who is conducting this research? Is there any interest in skewing the data? And then also, where does this data come from? Is that is that reliable? Is that representative ultimately? Okay. And I think that's why overall, like I, I would I call it data literacy is so important, especially because there's so much information. Um, like you know, with the the internet, obviously you can you can look up anything and have. Um, very polarizing viewpoints at your disposal. Should you do, you know, true, is yeah. it, what is the right, what is it, what is a good diet? Is keto good? Is keto not good? Is fasting good? Should I eat a certain type of vegetable or not? Or should I do juicing or whatever it is that you will find all sorts of studies out there that have often very, um, you know, polarizing reports and um, overall for your health and quality of life, it is important. And, um, also for, I'm just thinking like, for example, of my son, like that's definitely something I want to, um, obviously through education, external education too, but also through myself, um, something I think that's very important to teach um, in this day and age is how to, how to, you know, question data and how to, you know, process information and, and know what to trust and not to trust. We certainly have this affliction uh, as it is now, this sort of Twitterization of everything, where it's like you read yeah. the headline and you supposedly know everything that there is in the article, right? Or the, yeah. the belief that the headline encapsulates that you know the the truth at the core of the uh, of the study, right? I mean, if you're looking at studies in an academic setting, uh, they're usually accompanied by some kind of uh, preamble or, or uh, abstract that tells you like this is this is what we found out, and this is how we did it. But it's not until you look at the data and and maybe compare that study to other studies in uh, from a data perspective that you truly get something useful out of it. And I think that's why it is still, in my mind, so important to be able to have some sort of trustworthy sources that can ultimately curate that information in a reliable way for you. Because with this flood of information, all these different topics flying at you, all day long, it is virtually impossible to do your due diligence on all of them, all of that. Like it would be even just in your business setting, completely impossible. But personally, and about you know healthy eating, um, you know democratic participation, all sorts of other issues, it's it's virtually impossible to go deep into anything. Because if anyone has ever gone deeper into a subject, um, they know that the deeper you go, the more complex it gets, and ultimately you realize that you almost don't know anything about something. <laughs> um, so again, it's that if uh, we, I guess we kind of moved away from this model of like I was following a particular newspaper or publication and there were people employed that, you know, knew a lot about something and I read that one newspaper and they curated something for me. Now, obviously, there's inherent bias too because sometimes a newspaper might follow a specific, you know, 
political viewpoint more than another one. Um, but still, overall, there was some sort of curation of content and people who actually knew something about these topics are writing about it. Um, uh, there's obviously advantage of Wikipedia and other structures where democratically from hundreds of, th hundreds of thousands of people, knowledge gets um, created. And there are studies that show that that is sometimes even more reliable. Um, but any, anyways, like especially this example that you brought up, Twitter, um, again, if you have these sort of bite-sized information, it's even whenever you, which I try to bring forward arguments on Twitter too, it's very hard to even articulate yourself properly within those, those limitations. I wanted to talk about how uh, research is presented in a sense, mm -hmm. right? So, uh, and let's let's cut this in uh, in the organization here, right? In in the scope of UX research, right? So, yeah. typically speaking, uh, business partner or team member comes to us and says, like, "Hey, we'd like to get this idea uh, or feature validated. Uh, could you explore something for us?" And we're more than happy to do it. Um, but the product that we return to them, the product of research that we return to them, is often uh, Again, Twitterized, right? It's it's boiled down to a set of uh, insights or actionable uh, bullet points, right? And I, one of the things that's bothered me for the longest time is, uh, it's not those bullet points are not representative of the work uh, and and depth of knowledge that went into creating the product. And I think one, I've been always been a very vocal. Um, proponent of um, user exposure. So I think in, in uh, participatory research, so in the sense of if it's the traditional sense of there's this researcher, he gets this task, he goes into his basement, does some sort of things on his computer and then comes back after three months with a, like a very long and boring report that maybe no one will read. Um, the, or even again, if we go back to our example and you have like these bullet points that you ultimately um, you know, found like the key findings and you present them maybe with a video sample too where someone can see how a user struggled. Um, it's still never as impactful if someone was, again, part of the research. If someone, for example, and maybe just to explain this term, so user exposure basically just means that someone was exposed to the user. So for example, if we do a usability test, maybe a business stakeholder or a product owner, um, someone from compliance, whoever it may be, was actually there and listened in and watched um, you know, the user trying to navigate that. And that is often um, very impactful because for building, you know, understanding and seeing it firsthand is often a lot more. Um, a, your understanding increases of it. Uh, B, I think your appreciation of sort of the craft that we have and how, how easy it sounds but how difficult it is to actually execute properly. And then maybe um, also um, C is just your, your maybe your interest going forward into it and then how you would consume these findings afterwards. So if you had at least listened to one of these usability tests and you can understand what it is and how we do it and you had an impactful experience and then you're presented with these bullet points later on, then those bullet points um, will have a very different meaning to you than if you would have just been seen, uh, seen these bullet points without any prior knowledge or maybe any exposure to what it actually is that we're, we're doing. And I think that's generally a, a high risk with research is that it's sort of shrouded in this mysterious um, researcher world. Again, with we have our own, again, sometimes we talk about p-values and statistical significance and margins of error and all sorts of, sure. And I think this, this terminology, while probably not um, that unapproachable, just seems very... Um, 
very divisive ultimately. Um, so someone may not may say, oh, like I don't, I don't like statistics. I, I had a bad experience with it, so I don't, um, I don't feel like I can read those types of reports. And again, it's obviously our responsibility to make sure that we produce these insights um, that can be best consumed by whoever we are um, giving them to and whatever format is right. But um, again, I think overall user exposure is so important for, for those reasons. User exposure, I think, goes a long way uh, towards making the research uh, important to the stakeholder too, or to whoever it is that you're doing the research for. Yeah. Uh, it helps them to see not only into the research process, but also uh, it makes the results real, right? So they're no longer just numbers on paper. They actually have, uh, you know, firsthand experience of how that product is performing or how that site is uh, interacting or how the user is interacting with the site rather. Yeah. And we all had these sort of very salient experience probably now at work. Like I'm just thinking back, one of the, the little apps that I was embedded in, um, there was a research study I've done. So I conducted basically these phone calls and we, we talked about, um, you know, layoffs and, you know, um, pensions and retirement savings and so forth. But we actually had someone on the phone who basically broke down crying, um, which was somewhat unexpected in the setting. Um, but um, those, I think that particular interview and the reason why that person was crying and how much how 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 that uh, what that experience meant to her ultimately at the end. Um, I've seen from very senior stakeholders who were in a call like up to a VP level or AVP level, um, but very impactful and uh, was still talked about like when I was still in the lab like you know like months afterwards that name was was brought up because it's so it's so impactful to to witness that human dimension of it rather than just reading a bullet point report saying users user get emotional because of paper form or something like that. Like it will never, no matter how you would portray that, it would never capture the, that human experience. And ultimately, I think we're all at risk of um, through the processes and our various procedures that we have. Um, we, there's a very high risk for all of us to lose touch with the human side to understand that everything we do, um, because we're going to be talking about you know, often life, death, financial health, physical health, mental health, ultimately is, is a very emotional and personal um, experience touch point with a real human being. And I think those, those, uh, those user exposure sessions can really be a reminder to us all that, again, even though we deal with these types of things on a daily basis, and it just seems sort of a normal to us at a certain point that we have these acronyms and they mean certain things to us um, to the ultimate end customer it's often a very you know um, emotionally um, loaded experience yes it certainly can be and you you do not get the depth of that experience in that bullet point i think that's often how our our the type of research that we do often differs from other research that maybe you conduct in your organization so ours is a lot more so we will also call qualitative um, or mixed methods um, in the sense that we get very close um, to that human experience, either through one-on-one -on -one interviews or through small sample sizes. So we only would talk to a couple of people, but in a very deep, uh, in a very deep sense versus um, some other research that is obviously also very valuable um, from the organization or from agencies that we may hire comes from it from a very sort of actuary or quantitative angle. Like we've talked to, 10,000 Canadians and they generally feel 
that kernel life um, has this attribute more than sun life, for example. It's a very different different angle. Extremely important, as much as ours is important. Um, but again, just a very different approach. Because in that type of research, you you obviously wouldn't get that that one experience. Now, that being said, we obviously have to be careful that we um, it's more even more so important for us to select the right type of people because if we only talk to five or six people, we have to be careful that we don't have the sort of deep experience uh, that we sort of document and, and share out, but then they're not representative of our customers. So that's the the, the other side to it. But I, I guess generally, I think it's worthwhile pointing out that the research that we do versus um, the research that may be done in other departments or by other groups within the digital hub or outside of that is generally more um, human-focused, small sample sizes. Yes, uh, and that can get lost on on some uh, lines of business in a sense. Like they uh, are more interested in trusting those actuarial figures, right? The larger numbers based on you know larger data sets versus talking to five or ten people. Yeah, and I mean you can't blame them either. I think, I think if you don't have have had any exposure to qualitative research and um, ultimately, also the the methodological rigor that we go through in order to produce those results. Um, I think it is very, it's a very common. But for example, I studied a more quantitative uh, social science background, and I had very similar opinions about what I do now because again, I have not a lot of exposure to it. So, if I have a study that had talked to 100,000 people and a study talked to five people, and I have again no understanding why why they why they only chose five people and how again their, their methodology rigor would be applied to it, I would just say, okay, I obviously trust the study that talked to, you know, 100x the, the number of people even more than this other study did. So I think it's a very uh, normal reaction. And plus our business, obviously, from the business side of things, is very actual driven. Like that's at the core of our business, uh, especially on the insurance side, that's exactly what we do. We try to look at the Canadian population and make predictions as to how a certain a data point such as um, you know, um, lifestyle, job, um, age has an effect of risk of, for example, premature death and how that would affect rates that we can offer or cannot offer. So again, we deal with sample sizes of like millions or tens of millions of Canadians. Um, so again, if you deal with someone who is used to that type of sample size of data that you trust, and then we say we will have only talked to five people, I think it's very understandable. And really, our job is to explain to them why ours is different and, and how, we, again, we have this this rigor to uh, and this craft to our approach. Um, but it's a very understandable, to me, a very understandable um, reaction, ultimately. One of the most difficult parts of that sort of research communication process, communicating that, you know, those five or ten people that you talk to, uh, you know, got good results or actionable results that you can trust is uh, communicating the questions that were asked mm-hmm. and, and how you arrived at those based on, uh, you know, what you were given, right? Because oftentimes we we get, you know, uh, again, the ask is kind of broad, like validate mm-hmm. this product idea or, um, you know, how is this performing from a usability standpoint? Uh, and those aren't really questions you can take to an end user right or an interview yeah. you can't say how is this product doing or yeah like yeah like how would you use this and stuff otherwise like that. you get a clippy situation with microsoft word uh 
we can do a better job of of educating our uh, stakeholders and and coworkers on uh, any anybody who's outside of the research profession um, can learn a bit about how to interface or interact with uh, users through research, right? So, um, how do we ask the right questions? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think even even that skill set, like being exposed to it, is still helpful. And even if you wouldn't label yourself a researcher or an analyst or anything like that, because we basically conduct research on a daily basis. And, and like, if I think of any job title we'd have within um, DCX, for example, um, or wider, we all conduct some sort of research on a daily basis. We get asked to do something, the tools constantly change. We always have to, you know, figure out what's the what's the right approach, what are what's our competitors doing, what is what is out there. Or even in business settings, like um maybe sometimes more in a managerial context, but someone asks of us to do something and then there's usually a period of us trying to understand where that's coming from. Is there any political background to this? Is there how is this is this maybe emotionally charged in some sort of sense? So we're all trying to um, having these human conversations ultimately, because um, most of us are humans, is um, maybe not because I'm the German robotic side of me, but um, we are we we all trying to interact, um, you know, on on a human basis with each other, and it, it's often difficult because we often don't say maybe right away what we actually want, what is the motivation behind it. Um, there's a lot of you know, there's uh, if I feel. If I, for example, have a project request and I feel like I'm not sure how to even ask it, I may may not be able to be as straightforward as I wanted to be about the reasons and again the political nature maybe of some um, some requests. So in general, being getting these sort of quote unquote skills as to how do I ask a question, get information from someone in an unbiased way is applicable to you know all of our jobs and all of our lives ultimately. And that is really like that is really a difficult thing. I mean. Um, I've been doing your ex research now for almost five years or so, and been in analysis for like ten years ish, and um, that's still something I struggle with on a, on a regular basis and try to hone is like how to ask a simple question because we, um, uh, you and I worked on many projects together where we um, did a usability test and we asked the user to do a certain thing, asked a question, and then it went completely a different way than we expected, ultimately. So it is it is actually extremely difficult to ask a question. Um, because by asking a question, you already have to make certain assumptions or know something, right? Like you, it's easier to ask a question, for example, in this type of interview, um, because we both know each other. We have sort of a shared experience within a within a company in a in a professional setting. So you will know that if you ask me a certain question and use certain words, that I will understand what you mean and be able to answer it appropriately. Versus if you this would be a blind interview date and you had no idea who I am or what my background is, um, it would be very hard for you to to ask um, ask a question. And that that's often how it it ultimately is. So it is it is quite difficult to to ask a question and maybe to to answer your question. How do you ask a question? Um, I think in general, at least like from a qualitative perspective, it's always that sort of funnel type approach where you try to um, start extremely broad, as broad as you can, without introducing any any bias. So, for example, if there's a project request, just to stick with this example, let's say, tell me about this request. So, you haven't really you haven't brought up anything about um, you know budgets or timelines or the 
the history? Is it did this, for example, this website perform well, not perform well? Are there known issues? There's nothing there. And then you can kind of react um, to what that person said and and um, react accordingly. So if someone brings up, uh, like, is you kind of get the feeling that they're under time pressure or... Uh, again, they bring up a lot of negative points about the performance of something. Then you then you know that you you know you can dig a little bit deeper, or again go up a little bit more. Ask like um, encouraging to talk about something more positive, maybe. So um, again, the 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 un, more unbiased in research, or I guess in any human interaction, you can be. The more likely you can um, you you are not um, forcing the direction any any certain way. And um, there's also I mean. Uh, it's well documented even in companies that uh, when the question, I think there was this example where um, you, when you, once you start measuring things or asking certain questions, like, for example, how many phone calls have you completed today? And that's your performance measurement. Then people will start to answer a certain way, but also act a certain way. So, again, the way you ask questions is is, is very important and very difficult, ultimately. I think that's something I struggle with also quite frequently is that Generally, it just seems like what I have, my craft over these like 10 years, seems ultimately very simple, right? I pick up the phone and ask people questions and write it down and tell people what people said. Um, or I create a survey or some sort of you know, um, digitized version of it. And I can ask questions and I get the answers and I sum them up. Um, but as simple as it sounds like to ask questions, and I mean, um, from your own experience with this podcast too, um, there's, there's quite a lot of a lot of craft um, to it, and I think that's again something I'm I'm constantly learning and, and failing at ultimately too. So I guess I also would say I don't have the answer to that question, <laughs> or as the typical research answer, I could say it depends. It depends. Yes, this is the the ultimate research answer. It depends, yeah. right? Or we need to do more research. Yes, <laughs> interesting question. And I think that's ultimately like the the tension always is that. Um, as researchers, um, generally speaking, I don't want to you know, generalize it across every researcher the same, but generally speaking, I think someone is attracted to something like a research position is because they love the process of discovery. And for them, like for myself, if I have done research and I have 50 new questions, it's very exciting to me. Like I found a little bit out, but I have so much more questions and I want to do so much more research and I want to do it for years and years on end. Um, but to uh, going back to the very beginning of our conversation with the actionable component to a business stakeholder, that's obviously not what is exciting to them. The exciting thing is that I have a problem or I, I have an area of risk or I don't know something about um, a certain feature. And I want you to give me more certainty or give me maybe reduce my risk or, um, you know, give me some indication as to what I could do. And I think that's that's constantly that, um, that, that a certain field of tension to force yourself as a as someone who does research to remind yourself that you're ultimately, you know, paid to give answers, obviously with, you know, certain um, constraints as to like, that is not the be all end all answer. And, and we can always say like, we have to do more research, but ultimately um, what is exciting to us may not be exciting to, to other people um, in, in a certain context, because again, they want to have some sort of action. That's ultimately why we get, why we get paid. Or then also contacted by the business. Yeah, the action part is is most important, but oftentimes those sort of trailing uh, questions that we have coming out of it are are yeah. important and and interesting to us, but not necessarily uh, 
important for the ask at hand, right? I think we're also most effective, um, uh, most productive and efficient ultimately when we work with, um, in a setting where we often can do iterative type of research. So we do either, again, if it's a lab that does it biweekly or if it's a project that we, uh, you know, we do research before it launches and then we look at it after it launches and a little bit afterwards. So it's not like one research it launches and then we just move on to the next thing and never look at it again. Um, I think that the research where we are strongest at is that sort of iterative approach getting, and then you're also getting closer to the business in the sense that you will kind of start to understand what is it that they actually, what they need to know, what are they struggling with? What are these areas of risk? What, what are sort of, you know, gives them sleepless nights, what they don't know about, how can we serve and help them um, with the craft that, that we, we have at our, the tools that we have at our disposal um, so it's not just getting a new user; it's also about getting to know, you know, the the business and the the person you deal with on the the business side of things. So when it comes to all these, uh, the the business asks the more project focused research that we do. Um, when we're looking at all of those different uh, research projects, as it were, uh, they seem quite disjointed. I mean, from mm-hmm. like if you're looking at a view from a thousand feet, right? They're all kind of their own thing. Like if I uh, yeah. they're not necessarily cross compatible, right? I think academic research kind of differs in that sense where you are looking at uh, a sort of grander view of things, right? And, and mm. that sort of longer term uh, view of whatever it is that you're researching. Right, yeah. I think, yeah, it's definitely a risk that um, in these sort of individual projects, again, um, you're you're very confined to a certain point in time. So for example, if I do research on GroupNet and GroupNet just released a feature and it may have skewed certain results, then if I would do the exact same research you know, a month later with a different release, maybe I find out something completely different. So our the construct, ultimately, what it is that we're researching is shifting to. But I think generally speaking, our the strategy and research team, one of our, um, um, you know, our core um, reasons why we exist, I think, is um, to have that, to have a little bit of that that overview. Um, so that that idea of like that's the center of excellence, the idea of working ultimately at some point towards a repository of research that would that would allow people um, to see all the research that has been going on. So, for example, um, to avoid um, duplicating efforts. So maybe someone has already researched. Um, what you want to know on a product that may be very um, you know, applicable to you. I'm kind of thinking of the design system similarly. There's design work going on, but then there's also design system work going on where um, you're trying to understand, are there certain components that we can standardize that, um, for example, like a calculator field or a date picker, um, do we have to reinvent the wheel on all of our different sites? Um, and obviously the answer is no. <laughs> But um, that's ultimately what um, what I understand. I'm not very knowledgeable about design systems, but that's why I understand uh, uh, one of the core reasons for the design system to be there is to have that consistency and that an overall view and similar to research. That's, I think, something we definitely are still working towards. And also in the broader organization, we have various teams that do research uh, within the digital hub and brand marketing. We have teams that do research outside of us. We have on the individual business lines, we have teams that do research, we hire agencies that do research and just um, being able to, um, you know, uh, get visibility into that and being able to have transparency around sharing that with with us. So, for example, if there's a new UX designer or, 
someone new to uh, a certain product coming in, they could very quickly understand what findings have we found on GroupNet or, again, on calculators in, in general, being able to, to track those. And then, to, again, to even though we have those individual touch points on certain products, to keep having that bigger picture view, for example, saying that we found in a lot of our research that there's a certain problem with trust. People, if a form is, for example, too short and they get a quote back too fast, um, users have reported that it seems like they don't trust that we have done you know, enough due diligence to give them that recommendation. So if it's something we keep on finding over and over again over various platforms, labs, products, then it's something that, um, you know, our team could flag saying, okay, maybe we need to do more research on this or it's sort of a trend that we're seeing um, and we could start flagging that to other teams. So if then they start on something new that has to do with that, they could at least, um, you know, have that knowledge. But that is obviously a, a, a huge endeavor and something we have only um, begun to work towards, but definitely something that's um, you know extremely important because we ultimately want to serve with these research insights and and um, ultimately bring again the the customer closer to to all of us. This show is executive produced by yours truly with support from the Work From Home Committee. I want to thank Fabian for coming on this week and for tying that off so gracefully. There are a few things I want to do with the show outside of this deep dive series in the regular interview format. I'd like to return to our game show contestants for another round of arguing, and I want to ask a certain someone everything he knows about whales. All in due time, I suppose. Thanks for listening.